Alright, here we go. Today is Sunday, February 10th, 2019, and this is episode 233 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing very well. How are you? Yeah, I am doing okay. I went out for a couple uh, tasty beverages with a buddy yesterday, and um, I'm not as young as I used to be. I'll, I'll put it that way. <laughs> So I understand. <laughs> Aside from that, I'm doing great. Awesome. Awesome. So um, just a reminder before we uh, get much further, the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. Um, so, so some upcoming news. We've been invited to do a live episode of uh, Defensive Sec in front of a, a live audience. Well, I, I hope they'll be live. Wait a minute. Are they sure that they didn't mistake us for somebody better? Hey, look, let's roll with it before they figure out their mistake. Okay, great. Well, that's exciting. When and where? It is uh, Saturday, March 30th in Orlando, Florida. It's uh, B-Sides Orlando. Wow. I know, it's fancy. I think it's kind of fancy. All right. Uh, yeah. Pro tip, let's, let's not screw that up. <laughs> that's for sure. That's for sure. And and we have to have tchotchkes in case we do to smooth it over. Yeah, $50, right? I think is, is the, it's the uh, preferred tchotchke these days. Dang. Dang, inflation. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, we'll be down there. I don't think we know the schedule yet. Like, we don't know what time our little shindig is, but... Correct. It's a one-day event, so sometime during Saturday. Yeah, it, it appears to be a pretty impressive uh, show. So, I mean, I've, I've looked, watched some of the uh, videos, and it's um, looks to be a very well-run show. Well, so, uh, we're bringing the average down, so I, better hey, start high. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Um, let's see. So, another uh, big announcement. You know, I think there are only four people in the U.S. who are not running for president, so I'm announcing my candidacy right now. There we go. Let's get that out of the way. The llama party. Uh oh. I mean, did you have a have a platform of any variety that you'd like to, you know, put out there? Do you need one? I, eventually, I think I think so. I mean, you got to have something. I, to I put mean, in I with. didn't think this all the way through. Okay. I, I mean, I didn't look. Well, when well, you're all begging for money, you've got to at least, you know, make unrealistic promises to get the money. Oh, wait. Okay. So think of unrealistic promises. I'm just making a note. Hang on. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. A llama in every pot? Not, no, 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 no. No? No. What? Don't you remember the old a chicken yeah, in every pot? Yeah, yeah. But that just is wrong. Anyway. I, well, good luck. Uh, if you. you win, I'd like Australia. I don't think that's how this works. What? But oh. anyway. Damn it. Anyway. Um, so on a, uh, on a more serious and sober note, let's get into some stories. The first one today comes from securityweek.com in the 
Title is Hackers Use RDP as are, are Increasingly... Let me try that again. Hackers using RDP are increasingly using network tunneling to bypass protections. Yeah, it's a, it's a clumsy headline. Yeah, that, that happens. Um, so, so here's the deal. And, you know, th- this, I actually, um, I, I, this one resonated with me because I've, I've actually seen this sort of thing in, in the wild. Um, it's, it's a pain in the rear end because it, as they point out in the article, it leaves very, um, you know, very little kind of hard forensics. Now there are certainly some types of memory forensics you can do to recover what, what was happening kind of graphically on the screen. But, you know, in terms of like uh, law, you know, actual logs on what, um, you know, what was clicked on or whatever, as compared to things like PowerShell scripts and whatnot, it's um it, it's a much cleaner attack method for for a bad guy uh, than than something command line ish. So so the idea here is they're just leveraging the built in remote desktop uh, to jump onto systems and then and then to script sort of forwarding as well, right? From what I'm reading. Yeah. So so they um you know the the one thing that's not really clearly articulated in this article is this is being paired with other kinds of you know uh, other kinds of attacks so they're they're talking about compromising different types of systems in a network and then configuring those systems in order to relay traffic or rdp traffic so they give the example of a of a a jump host that sits that straddles kind of a um you know like a let's say a corporate network with with an isolated network and uh, and so they talk about how um attackers are compromising that jump host and then configuring uh configuring windows usually yes primarily windows right they're configuring that jump host through through tools like netsh to um get to forward rdp traffic on some you know some other random port into from from the you know kind of the either the internet directly or some other part of the company's network into uh, that isolated network. And all that can be done in a manner that doesn't interrupt the normal method of communication, the normal use of that jump server by, you know, actual valid administrators. Yeah. So, uh, but this just comes back to, again, um, just locking down and defending your RDP, right? Limiting its, its ability to, to flow if it shouldn't, making sure it's, the passwords are, are uh, I guess, hardened or even going two-factor uh, because this really is still relying upon them at some point harvesting some valid credentials, I imagine, to be able to, to jump over RDP. It's not, it's not that they are hacking the RDP protocol. It's that they have valid credentials and are then leveraging RDP. Yeah, they, correct. They've, they've, already, yeah. they've already penetrated the organization. They've already, you know, they've already collected credentials through some means and and now they're they're this is really lateral movement right you know and i I will i will tell you we we continue to see and we talk about it on the show a fair amount right we continue to see a lot of organizations being compromised via rdp that's directly exposed on the internet and which is which is a bad idea yeah it is it is definitely a bad idea And, and you know, in those cases, it's a little unclear whether you know w- w- how that those attacks actually happen. Is it you know 
password reuse, i.e. password stuffing attacks, or is it default passwords like, you know, let's say so, there's some uh, some standard piece of software installed with a default user ID and password, or is it chained with like phishing, you know, so they, they fish some, they try to fish some IT person or someone who would have, who otherwise would have access to log into that and then get their ID and password. Or, or even a multi-step attack where they get on somebody's local desktop and then just start Absolutely. gathering hashes and, Absolutely. Right. you know, either replaying or breaking those hashes and, you know, the typical methodology of, of going lateral in a Windows environment. I, I guess the difference here is that they're just leveraging RDP because it's ubiquitous and it's easy and it's low log uh, evidence of what actually is being done in those sessions. Correct. And, and a lot of organizations aren't really looking for RDP traffic. And so, mm. so you know, one of the points in this article is you, you ought to be looking for RDP going between endpoints that you, know, you shouldn't expect to see that and then also looking for RDP being tunneled across other protocols where you wouldn't expect to see those and then uh, you know and then obviously go investigate but also i think you meant you touched on it a little bit ago and it making sure that you can't log in or your, your systems are not logged in not able to be logged in using uh, local accounts right so in you know in the context of a windows active directory environment you know you should not allow a local administrator for instance to be able to log in across the network Hopefully, yet a lot of admins do because it's a convenient and useful tool for remote administration. Yeah, well, the, the, correct. And in, in the the it's it's not that you shouldn't allow any administrator to log in. It's that that specific local administrator account shouldn't be right. logged in. So anyway, um, there's a whole host of of best practices um, on Microsoft site. If you if you if you want to learn a lot more about this, go search for. Uh, Red Forests or Secure Access Workstations. Lots of stuff they've written about it. Um, and I, you know, I think it's it's something that, by the way, is very rarely implemented by um, by most organizations. So, um, and it leads to tears. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Moving on to the next story, which comes from ZDNet, and the title here is Trojan Malware is back, and it's the biggest hacking threat. To your business, so that's a that's a bold claim. It's the biggest and and baddest, I guess, right? Uh, uh, and all businesses are under equal levels of threat. Clearly, uh, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, so this this is uh, about a uh, an article about a Malware Labs report that points out that uh, over the past year, uh, Trojan malware. So they they kind of segment Trojan in backdoors. Is slightly different, uh, but almost um, almost tripled in terms of frequency um, from 2017 to 2018. And they pointed out that two particular Trojans are, are really quite common. One is Emotet and the other is TrickBot. TrickBot is often actually installed by Emotet, if that's not confusing enough. Um, you know, and these, these, by the way, are kind of you know, multi-use Trojans. We saw them used in uh, in cases like the uh, the ransomware attacks on, I think it was the the city of Anchorage and a couple of other uh, a couple of other places. This, as I understand it, is one of the um, you know one of the tools used 
to collect and sell access into organizations on the on the black market. So you know, there's a operations to um, you know, Jerry. Yeah, the appropriate term is dark web. Oh, sorry. I don't. God, you're such a square black market. I know. <sighs> Man. Oh well, I'll try well, harder. We'll, I'll try we'll harder. Go back and, we'll go back and edit. That I'll edit that out. Yeah, it'll be fine. Jeez, my God, it'll be fine. Um, Credibly, you know, that's the kind of thing that destroys our credibility in this industry, Mister. <laughs> so they they point out that um, you know, as compared to other types of malware like um, uh, crypto uh, ransomware, which was only up nine percent year over year, this is a you know a much much more significant increase. And they, they, they point out that it appears like it's related to uh, an increased interest in stealing data uh, rather than, you know, the, the, what we had been seeing with, uh, with ransomware. Although I will say that, you know, this as I, under, you know, as far as I understand, as we again saw in, in Alaska is a method of delivering ransomware. So it's it's kind of like a broad spectrum um, disease that can be used to uh, to implant other other problems. So uh, I, you know, it it seems problematic to me to to try to break it up this way. That that's all I can I can say right now. Yeah, I mean we have to remember that there's usually multi phases, multiple phases, right? And the initial exploit is not necessarily in any, any way related to whatever is then dropped on the box after exploitation. So, you know, that's what these toolkits are meant for, is is to plug and play different payloads and different exploits and different things to be downloaded later, um, you know, so that they can, once you've got a basic foothold, you can then drop other stuff on there as you see fit based on whatever your, your goals are. That's right. That's right. And, I, I mean, I'm not questioning any of the the validity of of this particular report um at all but a couple things to keep in mind it's what malware bytes was able to detect is what went into this report so i mean you have to look at the efficacy of their detection because that's all that they're reporting on so you know something to keep in mind it could be something is flying under the radar or you know their detection changed so their ability, you know, the incidents didn't necessarily change, but their ability to detect it did. There's a lot of things that could go into uh, potentially swaying these percentage changes. Yeah, well, f- f- certainly. And and I think it's also important to understand that Malwarebytes is only seeing what Malwarebytes sees, right? So they're, right. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not necessarily seeing other types of attacks that are not are reliant on... Um, on malware, and and that actually kind of dovetails into the second, or the well, I should say the next article, which comes from CSO Online, and the title is "Phishing Has Become the Root of Most Cyber Evil." Now wait a second, wait I, I, a second, I, right, right? So, you just told me that Trojan malware is the biggest threat, and now and now this one says it's phishing. It, it's no wonder we're confused. <laughs> yeah, I mean, have you ever get? I remember a long, long time ago, I used to be a, a, an ardent reader of um, Scott Adams' Dilbert books. And I remember um, one of his books, he talked about how in the future, um, marketing would, be so, would become so effective that you basically would buy whatever, um, whatever was most recently advertised to you before you got to the store. 
<laughs> and so, so whatever the, the the advertiser was right outside the store is what you right. you, you have to buy. Right. Oh. Right. And and you know this this just kind of harkens back to that concept. You know, we it's everybody's kind of got a perspective on what the most important security threat is. You know, in, in the, the 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 reality is they're all important, they're all serious. You know, most businesses are 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 plagued by all of these things. And it's kind of a crapshoot of, you know, what, what's more, what's more important. Well, and to put my cynical hat on for a moment, this particular report on phishing came from F5. The last report came from Malwarebytes. So again, we've got two different vendors in the space driving the narrative. Right. Uh, and of course, their goal is to either a build credibility or b uh, build mindshare, ultimately to help sell their products. Uh, so you always have to question what is it that the the vendor is selling that may help with the problem they're helping to define, right? So the vendor will often define the problem as the problem they can solve, not necessarily the problem you actually have. So this is something that I keep going back to, and I don't know a better way to fix it yet. You know, we do have some attempts to fix it, like with things like Gartner and, and other, uh, you know, sort of firms like that, but you always have to be careful when you're reading something that's sourced from a vendor because they have ulterior motives, whether they want to admit it or not or even know it or not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because they're, I mean, they're, they're incentivized generally to, um, you know, to collect and report on data that is relevant to the things that, you know, that's in their, that's in their wheelhouse. I mean, why would right. you spend time collecting stuff that's, not relevant to the stuff you do. That just doesn't make sense. And who knows how scientifically accurate these are. I mean, I remember working for vendors that will go unnamed that we would be at a major trade show and the marketing guys would go ask 50 people at the trade show and then put out a press release on that study. (laughs) That's awesome. And I'm like, you're kidding me. Um, So I'm not saying that these are that scientifically unrigorous as that example, but I'm just saying, you know... Be careful when you take this stuff at face value. Yeah, I, I, I just, I don't think you can really look at one of these headlines and say, well, that is the top, that is the top threat because it's, it's, you know, it's the top threat from the perspective of the data that they gathered and analyzed. I'm more willing to consider phishing probably a bigger threat than Trojans. That's just me, but that's anecdotal, gut feeling evidence. I can't back that up with statistics, uh, like I should. Yeah, so they, they they do in this in this article. I mean, for all the griping we did, they did they do point out a number of you know of, of actual real concerns. You know, as they point out, ninety three percent of phishing websites actually now use SSL or TLS certificates. You know, large, yep. largely because of um, you know it's become very pervasive and easy to use with the advent of. Let's encrypt. Not not bashing. Let's encrypt. Just saying, you know, it is what it is. We've we kind of taught people over the past fifteen years to look for the stupid green lock, and and now they, <laughs> and now we're, we're a victim of our own success on you know on that front. Um, right. And they they point out uh, with respect again to F five. Apparently, F five does some work in taking down malicious websites. They point out that the vast majority of sites they take down seventy six seventy five point six in fact, were phishing websites as opposed to the 
number two at only 11.3%, which was malicious scripts. So like, um, you know, exploit kits and whatnot. So, um, you know, obviously most, most of the effort right now is in collecting credentials. And I, I have a feeling, and, and this is a difficult, again, not quantifiable gut, gut feeling, but I have a feeling that the predominant or the preponderance of those are going to be attacks against consumers and not against, or not necessarily against organizations. I mean, at the end of the day, it is against an organization, but it's, you know, they're consumer, they're, they're direct attacks on consumers trying to masquerade as, let's say, a bank or a retailer or, or what have you. Yeah, I would say that from a volume standpoint, sure, but I would say enterprises, uh, phishing still plays a major, major role in the beginning of most enterprise exploits sure. And, sure. and attacks as well. I mean, look at look at the uh, the old WellPoint, you know, now now Anthem, right? That was uh, w-e-11-p-o-i-n-t.com. Right. <laughs> that, that that got them bit. So and and you know and so it goes. So so absolutely. Um, they do point out a couple of ideas, um, which I don't think are necessarily revolutionary, but, you know, making sure that you identify email that originates from outside of your organization. So a lot of organizations put a, like a, um, you know, external, the word external in brackets in, at the start of the subject line for email that comes in from the outside, um, I, I will tell you that is becoming a much more difficult thing to do in the modern, you know, in, in modern IT, because a lot of our, you know, increasingly, a lot of our business systems are not, you know, kind of quote inside the firewall. They're, sure. you know, software as a service type things. They're, you know, right, and they're generating regular emails that, you know, end up getting marked as external because they're coming from outside of the. Uh, you know the internal mail domain, at least from the MX's perspective. So they get marked as external, and then people are like, "Well, it's not external; it's our HR vendor." Well, yeah, right. but it's right. It's, so you end up you end up treat you, you you know depending on how you handle that, you can kind of create some some bad um, bad practices. And so so you mm-hmm. you really want to think about how best to handle that in, in training. Because if you say, you know, always be suspicious of emails that come from outside that look like the legitimate. And then all of a sudden, you know, your pay, your legitimate payroll emails come from outside, <laughs> you know, you get the point. Um, yes. Uh, antivirus software to catch malware when users click on a phishing link. Pretty, pretty obvious, but that is, you know, that's a, look, we talk about that a lot. Um, the whole point about ma- the whole point of, ma- of malware these days is being able to evade antivirus, mm-hmm. and and so, you know, I I'm, I've become a pretty strong advocate of looking for things that are much, you know, much more affirmative controls like whitelisting and uh, and and by the way, I love services like Proofpoint. I, I don't have any any um, horse in the Proofpoint race that. <laughs> at all. Uh, but, but I, one thing I really like about that is the ability to go back and uh, retrospectively look at my, who might have clicked on a link once you've def- determined that it is in fact malicious. So, so on the one hand, by the way, you see a lot of people um, complaining about the way that a service like Proofpoint works because it, you know, it, it really mangles 
links in websites or sorry links in um in emails uh and so so you know the old trick about hovering your mouse cursor over the over the link is really no longer an effective thing once you once you have a service like that but at the same time it's kind of offset by the fact that it's it's also doing its own screening and then lets you do some um you know some uh, some more advanced <laughs> capabilities that you wouldn't have otherwise like you know, it, at a certain point, again, you can go both go back retrospectively and look at who clicked on it, but you can also neuter it so that anybody that clicks on it in the future is redirected to some benign place rather than the malicious thing. So that, you know, the, by the way, I will, let me give you a little piece of advice, y'all, a little piece of advice. If you use a service like that, you need to update your training, your, your phishing simulations. Okay. Right. <laughs> Right, because otherwise you're going to confuse all your employees. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because if you send out phishing simulations and uh-huh. they have legitimate, actual URLs in them, and that people can kind of tell that they were originated from inside the company, not outside the company. So, yeah, yeah. Um, These things get complicated. Let's see. Uh, web filtering to block known phishing sites. Pretty simple, but becoming increasingly complicated with things like TLS3, by the way. Uh, and and there, there, there's um, there's a move afoot. I don't remember if TLS uh, 1.3 has it or not, but uh, I know that there's a move to to uh, take the SNI header, which has the, the, the domain, and the, you know, and move it's currently outside so you can do some filtering and make that encrypted too. So if that happens, it's, it's, uh, it's quite difficult. Well, yeah, I mean, on that topic, we've got this big culture war going on between privacy advocates and corporate security folks on the ability to inspect this traffic. Correct. And I, I, I certainly see where the privacy advocates are coming from, that uh, the, there's weaknesses that TLS previous to 1.3 had that allowed silent, undetectable man-in-the-middle inspection, and that's bad. I get it. But at the same time, uh, corporate security has used that ability to inspect for malware and other malicious activity and you know keep companies safe so we're we we actually are going to end up blinding a lot of tools if we don't redesign some of that architecture uh and the the privacy crowd is not too sympathetic to that They, they basically say that's that's the price of admission you know deal with it uh, but it's it's very scary to somebody like me when I see that all my DLP tools, my anti-malware tools, my ability to spot tunneling through proxies, uh, and all sorts of stuff is going to get completely blinded uh, by TLS 1.3. Yeah, I think it's a it, it it you know look both both sides have objectively valid points, right? Um, and 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 I think part of the issue is that we're trying to apply the same type the, the, you know, the very same technology in both venues and that and, and that is causing a big problem you know it makes it makes good sense that when we're acting on our own in our personal lives that we would want a version of tls 1.3 that doesn't let anybody else man in the middle of us without us knowing but at the same time in the context of an organization we have a responsibility to protect that organization and all the data and systems that it contains and you know a key component of that as we've talked about over and over and over and over again you know that that stuff is is 
par- you know primarily coming in via you know via the web via web and and not being able to see what's inside those flows is really problematic so yeah and and i'm sure people are are saying well there are solutions there are technologies and ways to deal with it yes yes there are this yep. is not an unsolvable problem but it, it certainly adds to the complexity correct uh, yeah, we saw, for instance, um, I, I think even with TLS one point three, you can you can use a um, you know a local certificate uh, on uh, that you that you s- store on devices to facilitate that man in the middle. But um, I think uh, we, you know we saw recently, I guess it was as recent as last week, there was some uh, Fi- Mozilla Firefox update that actually broke. If you were doing man in the middle uh, because of some some particular problem, so you know it's um it's it, it's not we're we're using the technology in a way that's not really intended, but is also at the same point in the again in the context of a business or organization is very important. So yeah, I would agree. All right. So other things, uh, single sign-on, which reduces password fatigue. I think the next one is really where you want to be, multi-factor authentication. By the way, we didn't include it in the list of stories this week, but there was a, uh, a story about a bank um, going publicly announcing that they were um, their customers were victims of the uh, um, attacks using signal si- signaling system seven to obtain uh, second factors delivered over SMS. Ouchie. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, I. You know, the, the, there's um, look. <laughs> as everybody knows, you know, some two factor is better than no two factor. But I think pretty pretty quickly, it, as most more more and more of the world moves to two factor, we're gonna you know we have to we have to wrestle with the realization that um, you know once we, once we cut cut off <laughs> the you know the, uh, people's ability. To use just a password to log in, they're gonna they're gonna really start going after in earnest two factor and and this stuff takes a long time to change, and so uh, I I would recommend starting to think about you know if you're using SMS based two factor, you know start thinking about what you're gonna do next. Um, Agreed. I, uh, access controls to limit employees from reaching critical systems. That one is is really important, and that one um, you know we we talked a lot about in the uh, Sing Health breach. That was a big factor there, and actually I think it's probably a pretty big factor in, in most breaches. I don't know that a lot of organizations actually do a great job of of uh, of segmenting and uh, really delineating permissions. There's this. You know, there's this zero trust wave or, or, or methodology wave, and, and to some extent, it's I'm perceiving it as a bit of a sickness. Uh, now, I know that's going to be kind of controversial, but I think a lot of organizations kind of cherry pick the aspects of zero trust that they like, and and uh, not the parts that they don't understand or don't like, and. Um, Which kind of undercuts the whole point. Correct. And that could lead to false sense of security. Yeah, exactly. And not not to mention, I don't know that the technology we have is generally in a place, you know, that, that can withstand or, you know, can can reasonably 
sustain that kind of a model. You know, it's we, we see over and over kind of remotely exploitable via the network types of things. And in a in the context of a zero trust model, I mean that that's a house of cards that can implode really fast if you're if you're not careful. Sure. Um, all right. So. Oh, and then uh, and then fraud. They say fraud detection between or to quickly find infected endpoints, and by that they mean being able to uh, to see evidence that a system or workstation has been compromised, and um, you know maybe uh, via lateral d- indications of lateral movement and so on. That's uh, pretty important. And let's not forget they also say train your employees a lot and often. Correct. Which we have talked at length about the pros and cons of that approach. Yeah, I mean, look, you got to train your employees. <laughs> there's no, there's, right. there's no, there's no debate about that. The, the, uh, my view is the debate is about to what extent do we expect employees to be a um, you know a robust control and right agreed. Anyway, how, how much do you count on it? Right, exactly. Yeah. And I, my, my personal view, I think yours is too, that it's it's kind of setting people up to fail if you count on them too much. Yeah, we've seen too many incidents where, uh, for lots of reasons, stress and, and competing priorities and how they're rewarded, whatever the system is, uh, I you can certainly train them and hope for the best, but if you're not backstopping that with technology, you're, you're going to get popped. Right. Right. All right. Next, uh, next story comes from dark reading and the title here is ransomware attacked at uh, ransomware attack via MSP locks customers out of systems. So there was a, um, a managed services provider. So, so think, you know, think general it service provider, uh, that, had depending on who you read it's not cited directly in the story here but somewhere around 100 customers apparently with somewhere in the neighborhood of 1500 to 2000 systems being impacted um this this provider in uh, this provider used a piece of software called Kaseya i think that's how you say it Kaseya uh, V S A R M M and uh and this this software has a you know a, a, a central server and uh, is used to manage you know the the endpoints in the client organization so it's kind of an automation tool um, now these customers had additionally used this uh, tool called connectwise from a different company uh, which was used to I, as far as I can tell it was some kind of uh, trouble ticket integration tool well that particular uh, plugin for Kaseya had a vulnerability, and I guess you know if if you actually go, there's a link to a, a Reddit, a, a discussion on Reddit, which is apparently about this attack, although it's not exactly clear if it is or it's not. But a same technology and same kind of outcome. Um, the the vulnerability in this um, ConnectWise was apparently found back in 2017 and was patched some time ago. I guess it was patched last year. Um, 
And in fact, it was not only patched, but uh, connect, the, the company that makes ConnectWise actually pulled it off of their app store. And now there's there's a lot of hoopla going on about whether or not Kaseya and ConnectWise did enough to notify customers of the problem, you know, proactively. That that part's a little unclear. And this is a tough one because it's sort of a, a plug-in to a fairly obscure piece of software to begin with. Uh, I would bet most vulnerability management scanning tools probably wouldn't have picked this one up. Uh, me too. And I, I, to be honest, I had never heard of either of these pieces mm-hmm. of technology, and I've been around IT for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess this, is, this does sound like it's a fairly commonly used uh, piece of technology in the managed services uh, provider space. So, you know, may, maybe it's a, a fairly, you know, f- has a fairly narrow market. Uh, but, you know, when, there, there's a few pieces of data that's really not clear to me, like exactly how the attack went down. Now, we know that the the attack leveraged a vulnerability in this ConnectWise plugin, which was apparently an, uh, an SQL injection vulnerability, uh, which, which allowed the attackers basically full control of this VSA console. And once they, once they had that access, they could effectively push out the ransomware, which in this case was grand crab. And, and, you know, so um, again, over apparently over the, the, the span of like 80 customers effectively all at the same time, all of their systems uh, were infected with grand crab and, and locked up. Uh, what's not clear to me at all is where that server resided. Was that in you know in the in the end customer's network, or was it in the, this unnamed managed services provider's network? And why the heck was it ex- accessible by the internet? Was it even accessible from the internet? I, you know, there's there's a bunch of questions I don't really understand. Um, when when I read the discussion in that Reddit forum, I'm I'm kind of left with the the thought that it was accessible by the internet, which scares the hell out of me. By the way, yeah, and and this also brings up the concept we've we've talked about occasionally, which is a a concentration of risk when you start using outsourced service providers like this. Now it's inevitable, and I'm not saying don't do it, but you know this is a small version of what would happen if somebody found some pervasive backdoor in Azure or AWS or whatever, right? right? Um, or, you know, they, they found a way to take over the system management council of a major, um, you know, security MSSP, for instance, and suddenly could change firewall rules for a thousand customers. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there is this minor edge case risk uh, that I think it's small, but it's there. And, you know, I wouldn't say don't avoid using outsourced providers, but it's something to think about when you're vetting them. How good are they running their own security? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's, that, that is really important. Um, understanding the security practices of your, of your IT outsourcers and making sure they have reasonably good uh, good security is is very important and i you know it 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 occurs to me that you know this this problem is probably going to over time affect almost every 
almost every organization because IT in general is becoming much more um, you know automated and orchestrated, and we're we're becoming increasingly reliant on automation tools and. In my observation is that managed services providers, just by the nature of their business, have been kind of leaders in deploying that you know automation and orchestration uh, you know, software, and and so so yeah, you know that you're you're it, it makes sense that we're going to see that because it, with these MSPs because that's where it's um, you know probably mostly uh, most intensely deployed at and it's also one stop shopping for you know for a bad actor to you know to to go and and try to get some money uh, but at the same time you, if you go with an MSP there are other advantages you know so so it's not all badness right you the, the MSPs tend to you know be able to do things it's kind of like the, the 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 rants I've been on about about cloud and I used to be against cloud pretty pretty uh, ardently but I, I i now believe that it makes a, a lot of sense because in general most organizations can't run a data center as well as a cloud provider can sure uh, and and i think that in in most cases especially smaller organizations aren't going to be able to run an it environment as well as an msp can well this goes back to the old you know business 101 which is your business should focus on your core competency, and anything that isn't your core competency, outsourced to somebody else who, right. whatever it is, is their core competency. Exactly. So you can focus on what you're best at, and you, you know, outsource to whomever is best at whatever you're outsourcing. So you can focus on, you know, your core competency that differentiate you. And I think we're finally at a point in IT where that's probably going to happen um, more and more often. Yeah, I, I've, I've I've talked about it a lot. I, I really think that over over time, IT starts to become a utility play. It's it's like the it's going to be like power and water. It, it's not going to make sense for you to as an organization to uh, you know to to run your own IT because you just won't be able to do it as efficiently or as securely or as um, you know at, at the same level of quality as someone else but you know there will always be a need for a generator right so so there probably will always be a need for you know for some kind of on-prem uh type type it and i actually think we're starting to see that with this you know recent buzzword of you know what we're what we're calling edge computing so that's anyway um so moving on to the very last thing this is um something that caught my eye it's an update from uh, DLA Piper, which is a Waves a law firm, and they wrote a report on the f- you know, basically the first eight months of the GDPR. And um, there's really one interest, one very particularly interesting thing to me. In in that eight month time, there have been fifty nine thousand personal data breaches reported to data protection authorities in Europe. 59,000, that's not 59,000 people or or records, that's 59,000 breaches. That, by the way, does not include other kinds of GDPR violations like we recently saw with Google where they were fined 50 million euro by the the French CNIL Data Protection Authority for apparently, um, or I guess it's allegedly, maybe it's not allegedly anymore, um, for... um, 
doing stuff with data that they hadn't disclosed or ob- obtained consent from the data subjects on. Uh, and and so so all of that type of activity is outside. This is actual actually fifty nine thousand data breaches, which is really incredible. That yeah. is crazy, and, and you know I have no idea what their capacity to absorb and and deal with that many reports are, uh, but it makes you wonder, you know, especially because the next. The next line in this report is these range from minor breaches such as errant emails sent to the wrong recipient to major cyber hacks affecting millions of individuals making front page news. So immediately my thought process is, is it really useful to be reporting errant emails sent to the wrong recipient? But I don't know. I mean, that's the law as it is. And, and is the organization charged with uh, you know, taking these reports and processing effectively able to keep up? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really don't know. And as far as I know, there's only there's only been a small handful, and I, I can actually only think of one off the top of my head, uh, um, fines levied in response to an actual data breach. So, you know, all of the fines I'm aware of so far have been related to activities, um, save one, that have been related to activities that were, you know, mis, mis, basically mishandling or misrepresenting how personal data is being handled um it, you know the the breakdown by the way of of where the data breaches happened was kind of interesting in um <laughs> just sheer numbers wise fifteen thousand four hundred of them were in the netherlands and uh 12,600 were in germany and then uh, 10,600 were in the unit the uk 3800 in ireland I, it would be interesting, by the way, back to your uh, to the point you made a couple minutes ago, to be able to kind of see the distribution of like number of impacted individuals. You know, what does that look like? Is there only you know are are ninety percent or ninety five percent of these like the the misdirected email, right? You know, and only a handful of really big, you know, really actual major data breaches or 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 what? Don't really know, but. But yeah, I you know I have this kind of mental picture of the data protection authorities, kind of being like that old "I Love Lucy" skit where the was it the <laughs> the cookies or the cakes or whatever are coming off the assembly line much faster than they're able to to catch them and right um, right. This is uh, this is like I you know I knew I knew there were going to be a lot, but I didn't have any conception that it would be fifty nine thousand in in eight months. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's crazy, but not not a lot of other uh, you know, in my estimation, interesting information in the report. You know, they they do talk about a couple of um, a couple of notable fines levied in response to uh, um, some breaches, but they they're all pretty small. You know, like uh, eighty thousand pounds or eighty thousand euro, five thousand euro. So it's kind of interesting that you know. Um, not not sure if the big fines are are kind of off in the future still, or um, you know, or, or <laughs> are they just going to be so overwhelmed in uh, deluged in, in data breaches that they just have to be super selective in what they pursue? I I, right. I, I just don't know. Um, but you know, it's it, it's it's interesting. We we are seeing other countries, by the way, like Canada and, and here in the U.S., California's 
trying to enact something somewhat similar. Japan in, enacted something similar too. So, um, you know, this is uh, this is this kind of regime is becoming more the norm, and I I, I suspect most organizations have to kind of even if you're if you're not, especially if you're not already mm-hmm. operating under under GDPR regulations, kind of think about <laughs> like what would you do if you had to because they're uh, they're probably coming to a, a regulator near you so anyway that uh, that is the last of our stories for today cool so just a um, just a reminder you can find links to all the things we talked about tonight on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org you can follow the show on twitter at defensive sec you can follow Mr. Keller on Twitter at Lurg, me on Twitter at Malicious Link. You can also, by the way, go to uh, my uh, Mastodon instance. It's infos- mm. infosec.exchange and uh, sign up there. It's kind of kind of like Twitter, but you know, a lot less a uh, lot less crazy. As I, that's the way I'd say it. Uh, <laughs> so far, yes, so far. It'll it'll catch up probably. Um, yeah. So anyway, thanks everyone. Have a have a great week, and uh, we'll talk again soon. And shout out to our Patreon donors yes. as always. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Take care. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.